Planet GovX is a weekly roundup of the key public sector transformation stories from around the UK and further afield. As we shine a light on what's working and build bridges between different jurisdictions to improve delivery and transform outcomes. Planet GovX is supported by Forrester, helping government organisations perform at their best. Hi and welcome to another episode of Planet GovX. I'm Tim Coulthard and today I'm going to be taking a whistle-stop tour through the world of public sector transformation, central and local government stories. So joining me is David Wilde, our GM for government here at GovX Digital. We're going to take a run through the big stories that we've covered this week, uh, giving a spin on what they mean, what their impact is and their wider significance. Loads to get through, so we're just going to jump straight in. Here we go. So first up, we've got the pithily named Digital Identity and Attributes Trust Framework. Uh, I suppose these things aren't supposed to sound fun, but I guess the point here is that it's setting the direction and the rules of the game for the future of digital IDs in the UK. So the government's released this alpha version of its guidelines, uh, which the idea is it'll ultimately kickstart tech providers and the private sector to get involved in these kind of digital um, identity schemes whatever they might be in the future, whatever uses and applications we're going to have, uh, whether that's, you know, producing your ideas you used to in a supermarket to buy a, a can of beer or whether it's, you know, financial transactions and getting your, you know, getting your bank uh, identity sorted and that sort of stuff. So, you know, interesting uses, potentially uh, lots of areas where this can impact on our lives and, and the key the key elements of the draft guidelines are around ensuring products and services are accessible and inclusive. Uh, obviously, the privacy and data question, and data protection, fraud management, security. So, sort of standard elements you'd expect around a data and identity project. But I guess, what does this mean right now? And where do we see this going in terms of, you know, digital IDs? How will we identify ourselves in the future? How will the private sector chip in? What do you think? I think it's laudable, the intent. The question I have is actually how much of it's already been done and to what extent is government adding value in this um, or is it another example of, you know, closing the, closing the door after the horse is bolted? I, the things I look at is I think open banking has kind of done that bit, mm -hmm. yeah? Um, we saw through the track and trace fiasco of last year um, that government trying to build their own is probably not the best idea. You know, yeah. the, ended up using a commercial you know product anyway um and do we really have a problem with people proving their age identity and stuff there's plenty of just standard methods you know if you've got a credit card that's a clue uh, if you've got a driving license pretty hard thing to fake these days so so my question really is is i'd like to know more about what this is going to do to to support and enable what's already there my worry is that we'll end up going through a great big intellectual exercise reinventing what there is um so so there's something you know and and this fixation with let's do alpha and beta mm. um around other stuff why don't we just have a sensible policy conversation you remember the policy document thing we've done previously just have a sensible policy conversation and a baselining exercise about what already exists before we go charging off and talking to industries out there about what we think should be there because you never know it might already be so we got another unitary authority uh story in fact two unitary authorities one yeah coming around in northamptonshire yeah. the fine county um 
So we're, we're replacing a whole bunch of borough and district councils uh, with two unitaries. So we'll have North Northamptonshire Council and West Northamptonshire Council, uh, yep. replacing those smaller bodies. So I guess, I guess for me, is that, well, is it just two more unitary authorities or what's the trend with unitary authorities right now? Is, is it only going to go one way? Are we going to end up with them everywhere? Or is the point at which it doesn't work for certain places because you need that more granular regional identity and regional responsiveness? Let's, what, what are we going to do in the future? Is it just going to keep going this way? Well, yeah, let's look at the UK. Let's broaden it out first. Um, England is is the is the um, anomaly in the UK around this. So Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales are unitary countries. You know, they have their local government structure. All three of them are unitary based. Yep. So they've done it. OK, now, all right. There's a difference between doing it in a, a geography of 54 million versus a geography of eight or two or or one and a half. So. However, the what I find fascinating about the, the district county unitary arguments that you hear out there is, you know, it needs to be county because you need scale. It needs to be district because you need local. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and that's the real argument, uh, because unitary is what unitary is. Yeah. It's, it, it, you know, it's a it's a, a simpler, flatter method of, of doing local administration <clears throat> and delivering services locally. And so you have this, you know, local versus versus scale up debate that goes on. But I would question um, you look around those other, you know, the other countries. They've been through all this and they've come out the other side. It seems to work for them. The difference, of course, is they do have an administration at a population level of eight million. So there is a question, I guess, that comes out about combined authorities and perhaps the 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 where I'm interested in this is, is the answer combined authority unitary? So that gets your scale for big infrastructure stuff uh, that gets you not to where devolved administrations are, but gives you those kind of bodies, still politically accountable bodies that can uh, can kind of put through those big infrastructure projects and deal with that larger scale stuff. And then you're then you're back into the unit the conversation then isn't about whether we go unitary it's about what are the right size unitaries for the right kind of geographies and demographies there is a wealth of research about this stuff and if you ask people in the county council network they'll take their piece of research if you ask people in the district council network they'll take their piece of research people need to step back and go actually in the round there is a lot of very wise um sort of research around this that can help people decide that actually for this bit of North Yorkshire, you know, it should be 600,000 people and this large or whatever, this piece of uh, Surrey might need to be, you know, um, 400,000 people and, and tighter for whatever reason. And, and I've always viewed it as there's a kind of a three legged stool thing going on in here, which is around economy, yeah, demography and geography. And it's looking at those three together uh, and then forming a view. Government needs to, I think, set that tone and needs to drive that. As long as we say it's driven from the up, you're asking the Turkish to vote for Christmas, they're not going to do it. So you need to, need to enable that. We're seeing some movement on it, of course, with North Yorkshire and Somerset, um, and I believe it's Durham. Yeah, or Cumbria. Cumbria. Durham is already a unitary. So we've got, you know, we've got it going on with, with three three kind of geographies at the moment I don't think it's going to go away I do think that there's I think a little bit more courage from government in driving the agenda um, and I think a little bit less debate 
about whether counties or districts should continue to exist and the and the more grown-up conversation about actually unitarization on balance does work but you need to make sure you shape it in the best way to cover those three factors together so next we've got the thorny question of trusting government whether that's local central in fact any public sector organization um we had a really interesting session on this at the, at the conference in November when we were joined by uh, people from the UK and Canada and North America. And, you know, the conversation was almost inevitably framed around COVID and the government responses. Um, and so I suppose, I suppose the, the point here is where are we now in terms of trusting government? Has, has the past year systematically undermined it? Have there been pockets where actually trust has been rebuilt with certain activities? And, and it leads to this point now where, you know, the government has a vaccination rollout where it's desperately needs as many people as possible to be part of it in order for it to be effective. Um, but, you know, there are pockets of resistance, there's misinformation, there's, there's what, what, however you interpret it. So it's probably, a, it's a big question to try and tackle in a few minutes, but where are we now in terms of trusting government and what, <coughs> what are the next steps? I think we're on a I think we're on a, a kind of bit of a knife edge on this at the moment. So I think there was there was a big dip in trust last year when COVID first kicked off, largely because of the kind of uh, you know who in the right mind thought build a system in the centre and store another data and not tell anyone you're going to do with it is was going to work with our population. That's not how the UK works. We don't tolerate that stuff. <clears throat> but I think we've come out of that, and I think the um, the real success story around certainly around the vaccination program and the speed and, and the look around the world, you know, just how well we've done around that um, and the way in which it's been handled and managed, I think, has has been very, very good in rebuilding trust. Yeah. The reason I think we're on a, a kind of bit of a knife edge here is what government now does next mm. on this is going to be key. Now, where I think we are at the minute, <clears throat> the beauty of, of what's happened with the um, with the vaccination programme is it's clearly demonstrated why GDPR exists. And one of the core tenets of GDPR is you, you collect data and you use data, um, you're clear about the purpose for which you're gonna use it. And for, for vaccinations, that's been absolutely clear. And the government and wider public sector, not just the government, this is local authorities, health and government. So all the public services have been collaborating, sharing data, getting real-time stuff. We get daily updates of how many people have had a jab. It's amazing the, the quality and the richness of that data all around a common purpose to, pop, to inform the entire population about what's going on and to help us all be better protected from this thing. And, and that's great. But what's going to happen next with that data? Is it going to be discarded when we're finished? Is it going to be <clears throat> put somewhere secure and looked after um, in, and, and, and only used for, for the purposes for which it was collected? Yeah, which is for vaccination. Mm. Yeah, protection of the population. Or do people start using it for anything else? If they do the latter, that trust will go. It will go rapidly. It will fatally undermine it. So I think there's a challenge on the part to articulate to our population what's going to happen with that stuff people start asking questions when we hit 30 million people vaccinated people will ask questions so what are you doing with this stuff what are you going to do next with it yeah um and, and i think when we come out of lockdown um it's in the road how data is used to manage the consequence of coming out of lockdown will also put government and public services in sharp focus because if that if, if the data they have 
is inappropriately used in any way, that trust will be undermined. So, so that's the knife edge we're on, I think, right now. GDS is uh, launching a new training course for senior civil servants uh, to basically train them in the basics of digital transformation. Theory being quite a logical one that if you're, even if you're not hands-on, but you're overseeing or responsible for within a department, you know, a transformation program, you need to understand the basics of how this stuff works in order to be able to manage or oversee or get involved to some degree at policy level, whatever it might be. So the key outcomes would be around awareness of the government's digital priorities for the next 10 years, so a, a bit of horizon scanning, which is interesting, uh, awareness of the standards that digital teams have to monitor and adhere to, uh, understanding how multidisciplinary teams build user-centered designs like that, mm -hmm. Um, value of agile ways of working. We've had discussion about agile before and the fetishization of agile methodology and lingo. And so <laughs> interesting there. Uh, and then knowing where to access digital support uh, after and sort of build on their experience. So a couple of, couple of things that spring to mind here is clearly somebody's identified a need for this stuff. Um, okay. or, you're, you're frowning, maybe maybe there is or isn't a need, but why have they done this now? Will it help? Uh, or is it a bit like earlier, digital window dressing for something that you don't think needs to happen? Yeah, so I'm just gonna quote a couple of things, you know, real life things that have happened in the last 12, 14 months. So we're gonna train a bunch of senior leaders in the, in, in the civil service to, to do this stuff where they did it. They did it last year for COVID. You know, the HMRC spun up all that fantastic stuff in a week and a half, you know, around all the stuff around furlough and so on and so on and so on. So what are you going to teach them new? Yeah. And I go back into my own experience in the civil service way back um, 2000, 2002, 2003, foot and mouth disease and how the civil service completely mobilised and tackled that issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. The civil service is actually pretty good at this stuff. Uh, cops a bit of a bad press yeah it is the very agile organized it's a very agile ecosystem whitehall departments chop and change all the time machinery of government is actually a really good thing so so let's not think that senior civil servants can't do it they're actually very bright people and they are quite good at it mm. i think um so and and as for the agile piece you know my view on i've, I've had my view on agile yeah agile is a technology driven uh, methodology which is brilliant in its place um, but actually, government is not a software product. Yeah, it's it's a different thing. And 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 as I say, the civil service, our civil service, is probably one of the best in the world at managing that kind of stuff. And it's why it's emulated by so many others. So so let's not kind of you know get that. I do think there is a need for senior civil servants to be educated about transformation with digital. I do agree with that. However, I question: is it GDS? That are best suited i'd actually ask hmrc to say based on what you've done can we have a look please or hm land registry and the amazing stuff that they're already doing around that or dvla and how they completely transform the way that vehicle licensing happened or the banks because for me i think some of the most fundamental and successful transformation we've seen end to end in institutions of a similar size to Whitehall departments are in the big banks and you look at what the big banks have been through you know all of the banking crisis plus digital and everything else that they've been through maybe we'd learn more 
from practical examples of where people have done stuff, yeah, on that regard. If GDS are going to facilitate that kind of learning, I'd be behind it all the way. I'd agree with that. Yeah. My yeah. concern is it's in the abstract. So uh, it's, it's census time. Uh, so yeah. UK, UK listeners and viewers will know the census pretty well. Uh, Why are we doing another census when all the data is there in the internet? You know, it's kind yeah, of <laughs> so let's, let's unpack that bit. I mean, yeah, to yeah. me, a sort of once every 10 years collection of data in a world that's changing as rapidly as ours is right now yeah. might be regarded as anachronistic. But at the same time, you know, I suppose having that level and consistency across every residence at the same point could be useful beyond just everybody saying their religion is Jedi and that having to be regarded as a as a state religion and all these kind of silly things that happen. Yeah. <laughs> So what's the, I guess the serious point here is, is, is it still relevant in this world? Um, it's been run digitally, at least, at least there's not like bits of paper dropping through letterboxes, so the progress there. And, uh, you know, and I'm sure the ONS have, you know, really done some great work in sort of optimizing it so that it can be more accessible. And, and that's a good thing. But I guess your, your wider question for start of the 10 is, is it, is it relevant right now? And what could we do instead? Yeah, so my question, my first question, and I'm in two minds about the census. I, I can see the value, as you quite rightly said, I can see the value in collecting a bunch of information from the population as a whole about a point in time to inform some things. And, and in the past week, and this has been absolutely essential because you couldn't do economic profiling or anything else without that data. It's so important for so many things. But there is a question that how much of it already exists in the internet, how much it already exists out there, and it's just a question of getting permission to use it. The reason I'm in two minds about it is is back again to our earlier point about trust and the public um, and things like GDPR and stuff, because if we go around there just buying it off Tesco's and various other people and kind of mashing it all up, which technically I think is, is possible and would probably give us good data, but that's not really in the spirit of, of collecting data. Yeah, uh, and, and I think government doing that would be um, undermining yeah. that point of that principle around trust. Bizarrely, the census is a fantastic way of emulating that trust because you're going to the population and saying, we want to collect a bunch of information to help us run the country and, and inform how we run the country well for the next 10 years. So can you give us this information? And in return, you know, we as a government agency, you know, the Office of National Statistics will make damn sure it's protected and looked after and not sold on. Yeah. Uh, and if done in that spirit you can kind of go oh, right yeah i can get that and 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 that would make sense as long as they don't sell it on <laughs> that's the question <laughs> yeah uh, which i'm sure they won't um so so i would say so there probably still is uh, uh, on balance uh, on, and on the basis of that argument i think there is some value in the census in in helping to give that completely unbiased and uninfluenced view and perspective from the population into government about the state of the nation yeah and as you say it is electronic so it's less hassle um for people to do and i would assume a lot cheaper if nothing else in postage um <laughs> so so that so there is that um 
I do think within that though when they are asking for that information don't ask for information that is readily available don't know the answer have they done that research and it would be good for them to share that and perhaps give us a bit more depth of knowledge to the population that we're asking for this information for these reasons and 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 kind of again live that gdpr spirit about the census will be used for these purposes and a little bit more detail about how census have been used in the past. I think people would find that really interesting. I would. I'd yeah, I, that was exactly what I was, I was thinking. Well, if, if, if you've got a 10 yearly, you know, catch of data, what's it informing that, it, let's say by year eight, what are you still placing trust in that you collected eight years ago that you still think is relevant and is driving decision-making versus, <laughs> what actually is just, it's a snapshot at a certain point in time and you have to work on the principle that it's, its value or its accuracy declines year on year and therefore you, you place less and less emphasis on it as a, as a piece of data to feed into a decision, you know, into a decision making process. And I was very privileged um, back in the in the late 90s to be part of the Neighbourhood Renewal Programme. I worked very closely with ONS, um, who are the, you know, the organisation that do all this stuff. And they're really bright people and they don't ask for data just because for the sake of it. They do really think through and do some fantastic, really smart research about what the data is that's needed for the government to help the government make better decisions. So what they do is actually, it's not boring, it's actually quite exciting, it's quite fascinating. And, and the, the intellectual input that goes into determining what the census needs to collect is, is awesome. Uh, and I think they should make people more aware of it, frankly, because I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, our, our audience are, you know, local, central government executives, health executives. I, I wonder whether they know at what point they're making decisions using data that came from the census. Do, are they aware of it while they're doing it? Um, it'd be interesting to find out. I'm going to ask them in fact. Okay, and last but not least, mm. Budget Week in the UK. Um, the budget's a big thing, so there's, there's a lot there, but I wondered if there are any aspects of it that jumped out to you where the impact on civil service and local government in terms of what they're going to be doing as a result of it is significant. What, any highlights for you? Yeah, I mean, there were three for me on this one. The first one was levelling up, the levelling up fund, which which kind of really didn't get that much news coverage. Everyone, it was all about, you know, furlough and it was all about, you know, what we're going to provide short term, you know, for businesses and stuff. And I'll come on to that in a minute. But I think, you know, don't underestimate the importance, you know, £4.8 billion of levelling up money. Yeah, so what does this mean? This is money that is almost certainly going to be routed through local authorities and stuff like that would be sensible. Government try and do it centrally, they'd be bonkers, but you never know. Um, but £4.8 billion that goes in to improve where people live, you know, to improve their lot in life. Uh, and, and very much, you know, this is the government saying this was in our manifesto commitment and here's the cash and how we're going to do it. And in part, of course, it's also replacing a lot of the European type stuff. Um, you know, because, you know, all of those will be disappearing. And whilst there is going to be, you know, another fund for the European funding, levelling up is here, it's four and a half billion. It's a lot more than 1.5 billion they're talking about on the European piece. You know, that, that's a big ticket item um, that could do a huge amount of good. 
But in parallel with that, you've got kicking off um, a lot of arguments and rows about the town's fund and whether or not it's been distributed appropriately. So 4.8 billion being distributed, the, the key to this is going to be the transparency and the even handedness with which this money reaches out and lands. So that for me, I think it's going to be a massive issue um, over the next 12 months to 24 months as that amount of money hits local economies all over the country driven through public administration. If it's not seen to be fair and equitable, there'll be hell on as is already happening um, with the Towns Fund. If it's seen to be equitable and moves at pace, it will be an absolute key to the economic recovery. Because for me, this is where you can reshape urban centres. It brings us our whole places fit for the future stuff, comes to life, uh, spatial redesign, all that kind of stuff. And I think it's almost the, the following wind on the back of the remaining uh, COVID-related short-term measures to keep our businesses alive. Yeah, which gets me on to the second big thing. So brave, actually. You know, the government has, has stuck with furlough, has stuck with all of those and put more money into keeping those jobs going and keeping those businesses going. And people sort of almost oh, a lot of money. Why are they do you know that's and and there was a fair bit of coverage saying, what, you're gonna keep funding people having a holiday kind of stuff with some of the cynical views that were coming out around furlough. But it took start of my career. Uh, so I started in 1984 in civil service uh, when unemployment was just knocking on the door of four million long time ago I forget on a smaller population and that was when you know we had massive industrial upheaval as we know you know a lot of old um, industrial bases were collapsing and, and factories were closing and our whole economy was moving to the service-based economy we know today and people forget that unemployment is a blight and it's a massive drain on the treasury coffers and and unlike what we're having with uh, and i don't think this argument's been made clearly enough uh, politicians not for me but but you know you go back to the 80s it took a decade for the country to get unemployment down to two million to kind of you know still above where we are now and that was a decade of paying benefits for huge numbers of people across the country and massive deprivation and problems in parts of the parts of the UK. Uh, and, the, and the social implications of that and the community implications of that should not be underestimated. They were hard times. Mm. Now, you know, putting the money in now, uh, and back then, of course, interest rates weren't 0.2 something percent. Back then, interest rates were 8%, <laughs> 8 to 10. So when the government was having to borrow to pay for all this stuff, it costs, it costs big, you know, where now the government is able to borrow at much lower and you can, you can offset has been said, you know, um, a lot of this kind of COVID debt, you can, you can basically pay back over 60 years at fixed interest rates on things like bonds. So I think they're playing smart. I think it's the right answer. If you can keep half to two thirds of those jobs going, and companies coming out the other side uh, and people being stable and communities being stable brilliant right answer yeah let, let's keep that keep that through but we've we've done the week in about 30 minutes i reckon so pretty good going um, and we'll uh, we'll catch up again soon